Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Two Norries Podcast. I'm your host, James. I'm not joined as always by my good friend Timmy Long. Hi, everyone. This is a remote podcast. We're across the pond, the Atlantic Ocean, to Judge Wren, based out of Florida. How are you keeping, Judge? I'm great. I'm great, James. And it's so wonderful to be with you today. I just, I was, I was just saying before we got started. I, I love Ireland so much. It's, it's deep in my heart. So. When you asked me, I was like, you better believe it. <laughs> uh, anything to get closer, anything to feel closer to Ireland and, and all these lovely, wonderful people. Yeah, well, you're very welcome on our podcast. We're from the very southern county of Ireland in a place called Cork City. And we're from the north side of that city. And people from the north side of that city are known as Norries. So that's where the name comes from. And yeah, yeah and myself and Timmy are interested in yourself because um, we both have been through prison systems, mental health systems, addiction systems, and we're grateful now to be able to um, be college educated and to be working and to be, I suppose, relieved from all that kind of mental trauma. And uh, we have this platform now that has thousands of people listen every week. So I was, I was. Well, I am came. so inspired, and congratulations <laughs> to both of you. you. You know, not only you know for everything that you've transcended and everything that you've done moving forward, but then to really use your platform for good and to help inspire others that recovery is real, and that you know that there's really a lot of innovation happening in the court systems both in the united states and around the world yeah do, do you want to tell us about your life before you started up the mental health court like how <laughs> where, where were you born and what was your background like oh thanks well first of all i'm coming to you from uh the state of florida in the city of Fort Lauderdale, many of your listeners, I'm about 40 minutes north of Miami. Mm. And um, so I'm originally from New York, but but I moved down here when I was rather young. So uh, I guess this is this is this is the place where I call home. And I, you know, I had somewhat of a unconventional, non-traditional pathway. Uh, to the to to the judgeship, um, I you know I since I was a little girl I I wanted to go into law I wanted to run for office and do civil rights work um, 
ultimately, when I when I graduated from law school, I went to a, a wonderful university down here in Florida, South Florida, called Nova Southeastern uh, University uh, Law School. And to make a very long story short, you know, it was at, at a time when um, public interest jobs, you know, um, were really not available. Uh, they were very limited because it was during the recession. I graduated law school in 1983. So I went into private practice and I was really successful, you know, but I I was really off my path. I mean, it just wasn't the kind of humanistic uh, civil rights oriented work that I wanted to do. I actually thought about leaving the law and going back to college and getting my degree in psychology. But when I met with some deans over at the university, they, they discouraged that. And I felt kind of discouraged, actually. Um, and I took a little bit of time off because I had a little baby girl at the time. And I thought, well, if I am going to go back into the law, I really want to do it with great intention. You know, I really <laughs> prayed on it, meditated on it, read books, just everything to try to figure out what I really was looking for. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, I get a call. And it was inviting me to apply for um, an, a position called, I don't know if you have something like this in Ireland, but it was called the Public Guardianship uh, Office. I would be the public guardian for Broward County. That's the county I live in called Broward. And uh, work for the court system, work for the probate court, which um, for adults who were deemed incapacitated to proceed, um, they were incapacitated because of disability or whatnot, they were indigent, they were alone, they had no family to take care of their medical decisions, their social decisions, their housing issues, their benefits. So I ran that office. I had three social workers that worked with me. I took my own um, caseload, if you will, so I could expand the service model. It was the greatest, one of the greatest jobs I ever had. It sounds, um, like, sounds like a probation officer role here. Well, it's probate, so it's civil. It's um, okay. not criminal. Okay. It's a, it's a helping court. So for people, the the legal uh, dynamic would be that the judge would order me as somebody's legal guardian. Mm. Sometimes they're called conservatorships. Sometimes they're oh, called yeah. you know trustees. Made Every famous country by Britney Spears, wasn't it? Has yes, yes, exactly. It, without the trauma and um so yeah most of, so we had a very diverse uh clientele if you will a lot of older adults maybe suffering from alzheimer's or dementia um people with serious mental illnesses other individuals um with intellectual disorders or brain injuries so uh, all adults, and it was my job to take care of them and provide for their health, their safety, their welfare. So I was 
really, really dug into the community. Um, you know, I really needed to collaborate with social workers, nursing homes, um, you name it. I really needed to be all diverse, no disability rights, no housing rights. And it was just a great job. Was it rewarding? Um, was it rewarding? Yeah. It, it was it was it was fabulous and it was really in that job that um people would show up family members started showing up at my office and again this the way the law the statute in the state of florida read is this is not a a, a service this is not a program if people have family members only if they don't and they're yeah. indigent. So, but but over the course of, I love telling the story. Really, over the course of ten days, three different sets of families came to me. This was, in the early, very early nineties, nineteen nineties, and they said, you know, somebody told me that you could help. We help me with my mother you know, who suffers with schizophrenia. We cannot find treatment or services for her anywhere. We've tried everything. Every single family was basically coming to me without notice, saying exactly the same thing. Somebody told me you could help me with my brother. Somebody told me you could help me with my sister who suffers from bipolar disorder, you know, and I couldn't help them. And I didn't know who was telling them that I could. And so I, I actually tried to ask, you know, you know, some people in my, in my, in my county commission, are you, are you sending families to me? And they said, oh, no, no. Anyway, by the time, and these families were so distraught, they, they knew that their, their loved one was in crisis. Um, they were desperate for help. I didn't really know all that much about mental health at that point because I was delegating a lot to my social workers. Um, and I, you know what? I, I just made this promise. It was like a silent promise to these families that if I could ever do anything to help them, James, I would. Because let me tell you something, they were absolutely desperate and exhausted, you know, from all, everything, their trauma that they were experiencing, um, not being able to access care. And sure enough, three weeks later, on a Friday afternoon, I'll never forget it, I get a call. It was a kind of, you know, a little vague, but it was a friend of mine, an attorney. And he says, uh, listen, Ginger, somebody would not identify that person. Asked me to call you. They heard you speak at a local forum regarding uh, mental health. There was a controversy surrounding the potential closure of, of our state hospital, our state psychiatric hospital where I had a number of people there, uh, my clients there. Um, and they said, there's a new job 
a very highly responsible job in mental health position coming up and this person thinks that you would be a perfect fit. Are you interested? And I thought to myself, you know, I made a promise, not knowing what it was, not knowing what it paid, not knowing whether I could handle this job. I said, yes, I am interested. And P.S., what was the job? (laughs) The job was that I was going to serve as what was called a plaintiff's monitor in a federal class action, an institutional impact federal case lawsuit against our regional state hospital. And I would be part uh, of the plaintiff's team representing the patients, the residents. And let me tell you something. It was everything that laid the groundwork for me being able to design, implement a specialized mental health court because I got specially trained by these legal, by these experts on our legal team in everything you could possibly imagine Um, from innovative psychiatric rehabilitation to um, systems of care to uh, mental health consumer rights, you know, um, disability rights. I was trained in every discipline by virtue of having this very, and it was a very highly responsible Mm. uh, role. And uh, I, I, that job, I, I practically, I'm probably the only judge maybe in the world who practically lived in a psychiatric hospital for a year and a half because that's where I worked. Mm. I worked there. These were my clients and that's where I would stay. Um, not at night, of course, I would go home, but that's where I worked. So uh, it was terrible. I mean, the trauma that I witnessed, talk about vicarious trauma. Mm. There was no treatment. Mm. There was no treatment being offered, really. There was no rehabilitation. It was a very, very dark place. And now, of course, there's been many changes and it's not the same institution that it was, but this institution was very grim. You know, the way you, you speak about working in a psychiatric hospital for a year and so back then, I suppose psychiatric hospitals are a lot different to what they are now today. It, it, what it reminds me of is, is something like, you remember that film one flew over the cuckoo's nest when you have Jack Nicholson Absolutely. It was, it was, I mean, I don't want to upset any of your listeners either. I'm very sensitive to being trauma aware and trauma informed, but let's just say that, and this lawsuit had been filed several, many years ago, but it was as pretty much almost as bad as you could imagine. Um, There was... (laughs) group nakedness there was they shared clothing they shared toothbrushes 
there was no treatment. Um, it was really, really grim. And by the time I got there, there were some improvements made. Thank goodness. I don't know that I could have uh, endured working in that kind of an environment. Mm. Um, and still, it was it was uh, it was really traumatic because um, my job my job was basically to not only um, you know try to help my and advocate for my clients my the, the residents the patients at this institution but my job was really interesting and it was focused around the discharge planning process and this state hospital had almost 3000 beds and it was my job to evaluate the quality lack of quality of individualized discharge plans and actually follow people into the community to evaluate the discharge the placements and then report back to general counsel you know where they were deficient and of course they were deficient but the idea of this lawsuit was basically to build out the capacity of the system of care in in our in our uh in our catchment areas which was almost like the southern half of the state of florida it was a really um important learning experience for me because when you think of diversion from jail or prison mm -hmm. diversion is discharge planning yeah, yeah. You know, in Ireland, we have a horrific history of psychiatric institutions as well, you know, and asylums. And they closed, I'd say, 99% of the historic asylums down, but there was no replacements put in. And what happened then was the people that used to go to the asylums uh, started going to prison. And there was a UN Human Rights Committee did a report this year, and they were very scathing, actually, on the Irish government in terms of the amount of people with mental illness inside in the prison but we don't have a court like what you have so you have to think like if you're a judge a district court judge in ireland and you're presented with somebody that's after committing a crime you literally have no option only custodial sentence in, in typical incarceration you know so it's a, a wider problem as well right so i think that you know what was you know, we talk about political will. We talk about, you know, that, that it doesn't, you know, you, it just takes a small group of people really that are really strong advocates uh, of leading change. And I'm not talking, you know, people in, in high powered positions that, you know, identify these problems. And that's really what happened in my community we had uh, a, a judge and our a very high-powered public defender and uh, a couple of other folks that identified some real precipitating problems in our jail. Um, we it was starting to become overcrowded with individuals and overrepresentation of people coming out of the state hospitals, can't getting into care or other hospitals ending up getting arrested because it was easier for police to take people to jail. 
um, or they, of course, you know, were, were ill and, and one thing leads to another and, and, and they get arrested for minor nuisance types of offenses and things like that. Then they revolve in and out, right? Um, and they, there were suicides in the jail, but, but more to the point, there was a young man, and it is in the book, by the way, that I wrote uh, a few years back called, uh, and I'm not plugging the book, but if anybody's interested, it's Talk beautiful. Uh, it's called The Court of Refuge, uh, Stories from the Bench of America's First Mental Health Court. And this is published by Beacon Press, one of our largest social justice publishers in this country. And these are all human stories, but more to the point, it really focuses around a young man who wasn't even mentally ill. His name uh, is Aaron Wynn, and he ended up having, um, he was 18 years old, got in a very serious motorcycle accident, and experienced severe head trauma, and he ends up getting arrested and then ultimately, um, it turns out that not only did he get arrested once, but then he was released um, from the jail and then ended up um, having um, severe um, mental health problems and then goes into a supermarket, has a panic attack, dashes out of a local supermarket in South Florida, bumps in and collides, rather, with an elderly woman who falls to the pavement. She dies of head injuries. And now Aaron Wynn, uh, a young man who has traumatic brain injury, is now charged with murder. Mm. And it was really the Aaron Wynn case that uh, I think was the impetus to um, a task force of interdisciplinary mental health, behavioral health, substance use, high-powered task force that formed to say, we have to do something. Mm -hmm. We have to do something to stop people from getting arrested who are mentally ill because the judges don't know what to do. Um, they get trapped in jail or they revolve. And uh, ultimately, after several years of meeting with this task force, I was not on the task force. I was at the state hospital working. Um, they recognized that, well, there is a drug court, a problem-solving drug court in Miami-Dade. Why don't we try some kind of a model like that um, and start offering treatment instead of punishment. And I just happened to win my judicial election. I just came to the bench. Actually, they were waiting for me. And within six months of getting on a criminal bench, I never did a criminal trial in my life. And they and I got the call from the chief judge saying, congratulations, Ginger, you're our new mental health court. Judge, when do you want to start? And I you know, I never even thought that it had never been done before. I, I had training. I felt I built relationships with mm. all these community providers because of my work 
at the state hospital and I thought, you know, together, I think we could collaboratively do this. Had yeah. you got, had you done some practice as well with psych, uh, psychology as well and psychotherapy by this stage, uh, Ginger? Well, I certainly had enough, you know, not being a licensed psychologist or a doctor, but I certainly had a significant amount of training working with persons with all kinds of psychiatric and mental health disabilities, as well as other neurocognitive disorders. I was very well trained in systems of care and how, what, what, you know, system does what and how to advocate. I am a, I, you know, advocacy. This was, uh, you know, I was working for, uh, in America, it, it would be our disability rights, our protection and advocacy system for the state of Florida. I was part of that disability rights system. And it's the first of its kind in the United States, wasn't it? Yes, it and yes it was. Just you no, know, just the scale of it. So we think of like America. You think of America as a country, Ireland as a country, but for for the scale of America, it's like Western Europe, really. Like, and if we bring all the countries in Western Europe together, that's what you're dealing with: hundreds of millions of people across the vast landscape. It's not like a typical country; it's like your own continent. So it's surprising that like it. This only happened in the 90s, you know, I can imagine other communities in America having other judges, other people like you having very same experiences in other states as well. You know, it's interesting, but, you know, in Australia, for example, they didn't have a specialized mental health court, but they did do jail diversion internally, um, you know, through their justice health system. Um, and then they would collaborate with the judges. So the judges weren't doing it directly, but the judges were doing it indirectly. For example, in Australia, this model represents the first time that a specialized court was specifically developed for this purpose. Actually, it was a subdivision of my regular criminal division. I'm also a trial judge, so I have two divisions but that's what made it so unique. And I think what makes it so unique in that regard is now you have a judge at the top, correct? The judge is now making these decisions mm. and uh, in collaboration, of course. And in that regard, um, we were applying the beautiful law reform science uh, and philosophy of therapeutic jurisprudence um, which teaches us, and I, I sent something, you know, to you this morning, James, you yeah. know, that, that legal process could be anti-therapeutic or therapeutic, depending upon how somebody experiences court process. And so TJ, for short, uh, is what we call it in the field. It is about being trauma-informed, of course, but it's much more than that. It's the bench craft. It's what does it mean? How does a judge now turn a court inside out? So we could focus on dealing with discrimination and stigma and really lift people up to, to want to engage in care because we believe it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. Recovery, because we know that treatment works. And so from a recovery and a dignity vantage point, I think therapeutic jurisprudence really then informs all of us that want to do trauma-informed work. What does it sound like? What does it sound like? What does it look like? What are the dialogues we have to have in a court now? Because it's not a trial court, right? It's a treatment court. And it really turns a courtroom almost really it, it, in, into, into a triage. Um, it was, it's just a brilliant experience, really. How does, it, how does it actually work? So if somebody comes into your court and they have mental health issues, it's yeah. not, a, not a violent crime. It may be a misdemeanor. Correct. They may have with drugs or... They may have, it doesn't matter what they would have done, but how, how does it work? It's a Do they great get a question. It's a great question because, so we looked at, first of all, I am a county court judge, so it is misdemeanors. They are low-level crime, everything up to one year in jail. I cannot hear, there's only two offenses. I cannot hear the way the administrative order uh, was was executed. Um, no de- No driving under the influence charges, and no domestic violence, but I can hear battery charges with victim's consent. We, we decided, okay, we know we have this problem. We know we have an overrepresentation of people that need help in the jail. And we wanted, therefore, we wanted, number one, to cast a wide net. We want to bring in as many people as we can. And we want to make the referral process as simple as we can. And we wanted to make it as rapid, as swift and rapid as we can. Those, that was the, like a triage. That was the first thing that I thought was the most important thing. So we honed in on the first point of intercept when somebody gets arrested. That was, that's our, what we call our first appearance court or bond court. 
It happens within 24 hours. Somebody must appear before that court. They set bond. They notify people of what they're charged with. They get representation, etc., etc. So we 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 honed in. All of us honed in on that. We made our referral process completely open. Anybody could refer in. I don't need any records. I don't need anything. Let me see these people in my court as soon as possible. So we get the referral. I put them right on a docket for the next court day, the next business day. We had a clinician in the courtroom. In the courtroom. We're not waiting. I didn't want to wait for any assessments in the jail. We are bringing everything out in the open. We're taking it into the light of day. And sure, and, and so we would have the clinician talk to people, you know, privately. If somebody was psychotic, right? Somebody behaving bizarrely, really acutely ill, I developed a transportation order because I don't have any authority to hospitalize anybody as a county judge, only as a circuit higher level judge. And the order was pretty simple. I ordered this person to be transported by our sheriff's office to our local psychiatric acute care hospital or receiving unit for screening, independent screening and assessment. If they get admitted, they can't be discharged without coming back to me first so that I could oversee the appropriateness of where the discharge is. That's what I learned from the lawsuit, right? From the, from the institutional action. So this way, I'm holding systems of care accountable so people don't keep revolving in and mm. out, go back to the streets, go back to jail, get released, get rearrested. I mean, the trauma of all of that, the dehumanization of all of that. Cost. And so one, yeah, the cost, it's, it's endless. The shame, the marginalization. I mean, it, 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 it was just insane. What about the financial cost of it? Like, it sounds like you've got a lot of great resources at your hand there. But is it expensive? Does the Department of Justice fund it? Is it controversial politically well, in Florida? Well, we don't get any money. Okay. We we started um, with no grants, no money. I think it's because I was so well-versed in what to do. I didn't have to bring in any other helpers and we had a very shared vision we had this task force all high-powered heads of their agencies state attorney sheriff legislators county commissioners state representatives we we knew that we as a community we as a county were making a bold statement the statement was, we are not going to do business like this anymore in our justice system. People who are sick and mentally ill deserve treatment, not jail. 
That was, that was it. That was my mantra that I talked around the country with. We are not going to enable the criminalization of people who are ill and put them behind bars. We're not doing it. We're saying no. As a community, and our community really meant it, we were really, really intense, uh, and we still are. But I think that's the kind of urgency, that's the vision, that's the communication, uh, and that's the message that we were sending that this is over. We're not doing this anymore. Not if we could help it. In America, in America, though, a county or a state, they can make their own decisions. It doesn't have to go national. It's not a national decision. So, for example, back here in Ireland, if we wanted to make a decision like that, where we wanted to create this courthouse where people with mental health issues go in there and do everything that you're doing inside your court, which is absolutely amazing, um we'd have to go on a vote or it would have to be put in front of our government and there'd be this... Well, I think that's right. I think you're right in a sense. I mean, I don't know all the internal workings of your your jurisdictions and how much authority a judge may or may not have. Um, But I think that's why I was invited Mm -hmm. uh, many years ago to the National Disability Authority of Ireland in 2000 and uh, 2000, I think that was actually 2000 and around 2009 to speak to the NDA so that they could inform the parliament that this is what we want to do. Now, if there's other mechanisms, mayors, this, that, you know, not sure about that. But um, we, you know, I think that... Um, in, in, a, in, in smaller countries, I, I spent a lot of time in Scotland uh, a few years back helping them transform their justice system to a more trauma-informed uh, type of system, really focusing uh, on treatment, offering treatment where it's, where it's appropriate um, th- through their, through their uh, justice system, their court system there. It was a really great tour uh, that I took um, uh, there um, with Ian Ian Smith. Uh, I don't know if you've been following anything that's happening in Scotland. Yeah. Um, and I don't know um, if you're good friends with Jane, <laughs> uh, yeah. who's also on Twitter. Um, but you know, the 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 goal of really uh, shifting to a trauma aware uh, approach. Uh, which we call, which I really focus on as TJ or treatment oriented in that sense, they, you know, really wanted to spend a lot of, uh, got a coalition together. And they've been able, because smaller countries are much more cohesive, like you said, James, I mean, the U.S. massive, Scotland cohesive, much more unified, easier to do these things, I think, if you can get that coalition uh, and that vision going forward. You know, the nearest thing we have to what you do, there's a drug court specifically in Dublin and specifically for See? certain districts within Dublin, but they're still uh, convicted of the offence they've been brought forward for. 
but in your court, do they avoid the it's the decriminalization is what you have, isn't it? You know, that's a really interesting question because it, the way the order, the way our administrative order was originally written, you know, I wasn't dismissing cases unless they were subject to dismissal for, let's say, incompetency. I was with what's called withholding adjudication, no adjudication, no conviction. The drug courts are, are courts uh, where you enter a plea and then it gets yeah. dismissed. No pleas are entered uh, in my court. But I think, though, but what you're saying, I think, more to the point, you do have a drug court model. And none, and all, there's no one-size model necessarily that fits all. And if you can do a drug court, I'm betting you can do a mental health court, too. Because Absolutely. now, back then, you know, now we, we talk about behavioral health, right? It's not just one, you know, one disorder versus another disorder. Now we know they're often co-occurring disorders and we have to treat the whole person. Um, so we know people with drug addictions also have perhaps underlying depression disorders or anxiety or something else. So... Um, you know, I'm just kind of tossing that out there because I really think that that it's really about the advocacy. It's really about the leadership. It what really is about dual, leadership. What about dual diagnosis? Do they become before your court as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. And when I talked, I'm sorry, when I talked about co-occurring, I am talking about people yeah. who are duly diagnosed. And, I, 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 you know, in that, in keeping... You know, there's a lot of retirees, for example, in the state of Florida, right? The Sunshine State. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of people, uh, older adults, they have neurocognitive disorders because of Alzheimer's and dementia, right? I mm. want to see them too, not necessarily mm. a mental illness per se, um, but because that's a degenerative disease, correct? Um, but so we have a very wide net. We are not diagnostic specific or anything like that. Obviously, look, Aaron Wynn, traumatic yeah. brain injury, right? Mm -hmm. The big irony of irony. I mean, he ultimately ended up, just to give you an epilogue on Aaron Wynn, he ends up being committed to a state hospital in northern Florida where he's held in solitary confinement in four and five point restraints for over a year and a half. Tragic when story. he finally gets released, yep, when he finally gets released, he is diagnosed with PTSD, schizophrenia, every kind of mental illness you could possibly imagine because of what was really tantamount to torture. His parents ended up suing the state of Florida and they recovered almost nine, I think it was $19 million oh my God. For, that, for that negligence and maltreatment that their son received in order to get him privately placed in a, in a private hospital for head injuries and trauma. Well, what way is what way is our, what way is he doing today? Is 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 he okay? He's a lot. Yes, he's 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 in a private, he's in a private hospital just for neurologically just for neurological um, disorders, disordered individuals. 
you know, when you're inside with the courthouse judge, and um, when you're, you're, a lot of your patients may have severe mental illness and stuff like that. How do you, as a person, approach them at the, at the bench? You know, like I say, with- welcome. I say welcome. You know, no all rise. No, oh my gosh, you know, we're strength-based. Tell us about yourself. How do you feel? What can I do for you? Do you have a place to live? This court is literally turned inside out. Everybody knows that this court has one purpose and one purpose only. We are here for you. We are here for you. I mean, people could, they could practically fall down. I mean, they can't believe judges don't talk like this, right? But we have to talk like this because we have to take aim at stigma. We have to take aim at shame and marginalization. We have to teach everybody else that this is what we must do in order to change the way we think and feel about people with mental illnesses, correct? That mental illness is no different than any other kind of physical illness. And this prejudice and this discrimination has got to stop. 100%. I totally agree with you. Go on, Jim. Sorry, my apologies. I'm curious about Broward County. Because I, 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 I'm familiar with Broward County from a Vice documentary a good few years ago. I know it was around OxyContin and it was showed people from that, that county and the surrounding states coming to certain doctors and certain pharmacies. And it was really mind-blowing, you know, it was real blatant selling yeah. of prescriptions and tablets. But yes, how, how yes, Broward, the drug peddling. How, how is it today? Well, you know, first of all, Broward, Broward County is a very large county. Um, very, very large, very diverse, um, just as the state of Florida is. We are the, let me just, just to give you some, uh, you know, understanding, the state of Florida is the third largest state in the state of Florida, and we are 49th funded in terms of mental health, and we always were, and we still are. And so when we talk about lack of access to care and problem-solving courts, that was the problem we were attempting to solve, access to care. Um, You know, post, uh, you know, I'll talk about where we are, not only in Broward County, but I think in the world, uh, post-COVID-19 pandemic, you know, we've got epidemics on every front. We've got a suicide epidemic. Uh, we've got a mental health epidemic, and of course we have a substance use opioid epidemic. Um, and I think globally, uh, because obviously I, I I'm very cued into what's happening globally, mm. is that uh, I think that that post COVID nineteen, uh, if if we were making progress, this really really set us back. Yeah. One hundred percent. I think, I think a lot of people are struggling massively with their mental health issues. Has the rise in people going into your court, has it gotten much, much more since COVID nineteen? Have you seen a lot more cases of mental 
you know, mm-hmm. I, I honestly, I don't know that I've seen more cases um, in that regard. But if there's any silver linings, any silver linings to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, it is that for the first time, the state of Florida had to introduce and rely on on technology. Um, during the lockdown, we had to go on Zoom. We had never implemented any kind of virtual uh you know, video types of, of legal proceedings in our state. We were pr- really pretty far behind. That technology gave me the opportunity during the lockdown of our courthouse, right? Through video to go into the jail system during our bond court. And I could see people now in their cells and identify those who needed to get to a hospital. And that was and remains, and I can do that today now. Um, so I don't. Ha- so if somebody is too sick to appear before a judge or a magistrate, I could go now into. I could schedule a hearing. I could get on the link with the jail deputies and actually talk to somebody right at their cell and see how they're doing. I mean, if there's any, that to me is the biggest benefit because if we're talking about rapid diversion can't get much more rapid than that in a post booking model which is what a drug court is it's a post booking diversionary strategy let's say versus specialized police agencies that's pre-booking right that comes from the community so has have other states in in the u.s uh, duplicated your your system in mental health. Yeah, court. you know, there's hundreds and hundreds now of adult mental health courts, juvenile mental health courts, and and hybrid courts. Um, veter- the veterans courts that came on board just for veterans is really the mental health court, and the jug court was the launching pad uh, for veterans courts. There's behavioral health courts mental health, substance. So um, there's hundreds of them and then all uh, exponentially these hybrid courts, both on the juvenile level and on the adult level. And of course, also um, they're starting to become much more popular, I think, too, on the global level. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting you mentioned I suppose one of the positives from COVID was the use of technology. And our, our podcast now is streamed into all the Irish prisons. So there will be prisoners accessing this and listening and watching you on the well, prison Well, that TV channel. is awesome. So could I talk to them direct? Well, yeah. What I was going to ask you, like, there's going to be people incarcerated at the moment watching this suffering with mental health and mental illness. Can you have you any words of encouragement for those people? That I do. Oh, my God. We should do another podcast just on reentry. <laughs> Um, so let's talk about a couple of things. First of all, first of all, you must take advantage of every opportunity for treatment, life skills, any educational programs. Do everything you can to improve yourself and your health so 
that when you do re-enter into the community, you could hit the ground running, right? You could hit the ground running. And don't forget that your lived experience is valuable. It's now currency. You can be a peer recovery specialist. You could turn your, you know, you could take, you know, your, your trauma, your growth, everything you've learned, and then turn around and help others, just like what you all are doing. And everybody can do the same thing. That, you know, we have to keep in mind that we've all had... You know, we, we come from families that may have had dysfunction. Everybody has something to recover from, right? Yeah. And, you know, you have to do the work and then the work will come and you'll literally start experiencing your own growth, your own transformation and work towards having a wonderful quality of life. And I think everybody has the capacity to do that. Yeah, that's yeah. It's beautiful to hear. Have you ever, like, I suppose when myself and Timmy were at our lowest, people would have supported us. I know when we're, we're doing okay, sometimes we get to meet those people. Have you ever had the opportunity to uh, reconnect with somebody that's come through your court and they're in a better place? You know, I have. I've had many times, and it, and I and I work with them. So I work with them. So for example, um, a, a young woman who came into my court and, and she's in the book. She's the last, she's in the book. Her story's in the book. And she was, I gave her, she's, she, I said, listen, she's my only live real interview. All the other human stories um, are composites. And I said, if you do this, you get to name your own chapter. And so she named the chapter Recovery is Real. And her name is Catherine Steves. And I present with her often. And she went back to college. And she's been working as a, a, peer, as, um, a peer specialist, as a case manager in one of our largest mental health centers in Broward County for, I think, the past 15 years. Amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Sounds like she'd be a good guest for us as well. <laughs> she would be. Yeah, we could both come on together too. We've done, she's, you know, it's really interesting to have the judge and then mm. the former defense, you know, coming on at the same level, right? Mm. As peers, as advocates. It's so empowering and I mm. love it. I just, I, I love, I've spoken with her so many times and every time I, it's a joy. Good. Maybe we do that in twenty twenty three. But look, thanks for your time. Do you want to tell us um, where people can follow you and maybe send you a message of support if they want to? Oh, thanks. Well, I don't. You know, who knows what's happening with Twitter these days, right? I know. <laughs> um, right. But I am on Twitter at, at Judge, just at Judge Ren. Um, but otherwise, you know, I'm on LinkedIn, but I don't. I'm not really on there that much. Yeah. But to everyone, you know, if you do get online, I have so many art blog articles and yeah. um, everything, and they're so insp- so educative and inspiring. I think you would really enjoy them. And we'll put all those links in the description of this video and podcast, so um, people can just click on whatever link they're into. Thanks for your time, and uh, it was lovely speaking with you. 
Take care. Be well. I'll see you. I'll uh, see you on Twitter. <laughs> God bless. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.